Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Irvin Magic Johnson was born. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Now, to tell the story of Magic Johnson, one must include the story of Larry Bird. This is their story of love, friendship, and basketball. It all began in Salt Lake City, Utah, on the night of March 26, 1979. It was the NCAA championship, Indiana State versus Michigan State, a game that still ranks as the highest rated college final ever on television. A game that's now remembered as a prologue to a rivalry that transformed a sport and intertwined two legacies. Here's Larry Bird and Irvin Magic Johnson just before the big game. It would be the first time these two would go head-to-head on a basketball court. This is probably the biggest game I'll ever play in my life, and I just feel like, you know, I'm representing not only myself, my team, but we're representing our school and our our town, Terre Haute. Well, it's uh, a dream come true, really, for me. Uh, I won the state title back in my home state, and then my next accomplishment was going to the NCAA and playing in uh, a game like tonight in the finals. They were two stars made to compete, but only one of them had been groomed for the spotlight. Born August 14, 1959, Irvin Johnson grew up in Lansing, a gritty industrial capital city of Michigan. He was one of Christine and Irvin Johnson Sr.'s 10 kids. Christine was a school custodian, while Irvin Sr. worked two jobs nearly around the clock. Here's Magic Johnson. My father, he got up early every morning, 6 o'clock or so, and uh, he went to work on his trash hauling truck every single day. Around noon, he would come home, catch a nap, and then he worked for General Motors for 30 years. And he won an award for never being late and never uh, missed a day. As a youngster, Irvin displayed his own strong work ethic on the blacktop. Here's Magic and his sister, Evelyn. I was out there all day long. Before we went to school, the bus leave at 7, 7.30. I was out there at 6, 6.30, working on my game. From a very young age, Irvin knew what he wanted to do. He had it all planned out. My dreams were to play in the NBA and become a businessman. Irvin was preparing to go to his neighborhood high school, a basketball powerhouse. They're predominantly black, Sexton High. But when Lansing began busing to desegregate its school system, Irvin's journey took an unexpected detour to the predominantly white Everett High School across town. My first day at Everett High School was my first time I really had to understand there was a a race problem. Nobody 
white would speak to anybody black, and no white black would speak to anybody white. A lot of racial tension, a lot of fights, rioting. He kind of shrugged it off, and basically his attitude was, okay, well, I'll, I'll overcome this. Here's Irvin's high school basketball coach, George Fox. Whenever there was any racial problems, the principal would get Irvin and go talk to these kids. I can just see him with his big hands, calm down, just calm down. He'd break up fights. Talk with his friends, tell him, you know, let it go. You know, we can't fight about everything. Let's just chill, let's play basketball. Irvin's talent was so great that soon after his varsity debut, a local reporter, dazzled by his exploits, gave the budding star a nickname. In the beginning, I thought it was foolish and dumb. You know, I didn't know nothing about a nickname. Then what happened was, you start saying, wait a minute, it fits my game. Hanging out with my boys on the street corners, we used to sing Temptation songs. They start saying, hey man, Magic, that's cool. And then people on the street start saying, hey Magic. And I said, hmm. <laughs> he bought into it and um, I think he felt he had to kind of live up to that name. And I must say that he did. He loved it. The more attention he got, you know, he just, he wanted attention from anybody he could get it from. Yeah, it does, honestly. I really love the game, and uh, I just want to win. Gets it over and back, and he jams it through. Irvin Johnson. Irvin loved to dress. Nice sandal belt and pants and overcoats with the, the fur around the collar. Always had to have his afro blown out. He had to look the part, play the part. Irvin was the first guy to have a posse. He not only had a posse of a lot of black kids, he had a lot of white kids and hanging around him. Some of my white friends were like, hey man, uh, we're having a kegger tonight, won't you come on by? And I said, what's a kegger? So he said, well, what it is, we get this big keg of beer and you just go for it. Okay. Well, what time does the, the kegger start? Because regular party time in our neighborhood is 10, 11 o'clock. Uh, the kegger starts at 7. I said, the party starts at 7 o'clock? I said, okay, man, I'm going to come to the kegger. We had a good time. The music was kind of bad, but we had a good time, you know. In his senior year, Magic did at Everett what he had planned to do at Sexton, win the state championship. And when it came to choosing a college, he decided to stay home in Lansing. Next year, I will be uh, attending Michigan State University. At MSU, Magic's star quickly went national. But at the top of the college game, he soon discovered a certain presence beside him. The first time I saw Larry Bird was actually in a magazine. Saw his stats blown away by his stats. But let's see if he can really do it against us. And that's always a mindset of black players if he's a great white player. In 1978, after his freshman year, the 18-year-old Magic would quickly find out when he and Bird were both chosen to play for Team USA in the World Invitational Tournament. Spectators had never seen their pass-first, shoot-later approach. It was refreshing, and they quickly became crowd favorites. It, it was blowing my mind because he's dominating Jack Givens. 
Player of the Year in college basketball. Larry Bird is eating him alive. I couldn't wait to call home to tell my boys, man, this dude named Larry Bird is for real. This is the baddest white dude I've ever seen in my life. And when we come back, more on the story of Magic Johnson, born on this day in history in 1959. This is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Magic Johnson. And of course, you've got to include Larry Bird when telling Magic Johnson's story. And again, Magic Johnson was born on this day in history in 1959. We continue with the story. Here's Larry Bird. Well, I thought he was very good. There's no question about it. I, actually, I thought he was probably the best guard on the team. Irvin Johnson, look at that. Oh! We didn't get to play a lot, but you could tell. I think our first game was in Kentucky. We got about a 10, 12-point lead. And they put us in. Went to 25, 30, just that fast. Fast break again, three on two, Griffith, one! That's steal by Larry Bird. Take us out, the lead go back down, put us back in. That's Bird and Johnson. The show started again. When you play with Magic, there's just something about it. You want to make that extra pass, you want to get that rebound and start to break. We came down a couple times. I go behind my back, no look to him. He no look back to me, and I'm laying it up. I'm saying, oh, man. Here's that last play. Magic Johnson going in, drops off the bird. Bird puts it back off inside to Johnson. Super bad. This guy got game. They had some wonderful moments on the court, but the two had no meaningful conversations. Such brevity was hardly strange coming from Larry Bird, who was not only one of college basketball's greatest players, but also its biggest enigma. Larry Bird grew up in southern Indiana in the tough working-class town of French Lick, population 2,000. Tiny and remote, it was one of the poorest places in the state. Arriving Pearl Harbor Day on December 7, 1956, Larry was the fourth of six kids born to Georgia and Joe Bird. Early on, he and his four older brothers earned a reputation around town. Here's older brother Mark and Larry. We were always considered troublemakers. We're either fighting amongst ourselves or there was always one of us fighting somebody. Larry was always one that kind of instigated things, you know. If I get my brother in a fight with somebody his age, I was happy as hell, because I like to see him get beat up, and that's just the way it was. If, if I got in a, a scrape with some kid, and my brothers didn't come to my side, they knew that when he got home, my dad was gonna whip him. Larry and my dad were best of friends. They done everything together. When my dad would go out to my grandma's house, Larry would always go with him, they'd go fishing, do a lot of things together. Larry's father battled his whole life against the demons caused by PTSD, which stemmed from a tour of duty in Korea. A talented craftsman, Joe Bird struggled to hold steady jobs. My mom sometimes worked late, and sometimes she had two jobs, but that's the way it was. I worked at school during my lunch hours, worked at the local grocery store, put up hay in the summer. I mean, if you wanted money, you had to get it on your own. 
To young Larry, actions spoke louder than words. He was very quiet, kind of hung to himself a little bit. I saw Larry take an F in an English class because he had to get up in front of his peers and give a speech. He said, I won't do it. But he just could not get up in front of his friends and talk. He was that shy. Of course, next thing you know, when he knew it was time for all of us together at the gymnasium, there he'd be. The minute he'd get a basketball in his hand, things were totally different. He was good enough for Indiana University's most revered and feared coach, Bobby Knight, to come calling late in his senior year. And since the Birds didn't own a car, Larry's uncle tossed Bird's loan bag in the back seat of his Ford and drove 49 miles north to Bloomington to play ball for one of the best college teams in the land. Once I got to IU, it didn't take long to realize that I was out of my cocoon. Had over 30-some thousand students that I didn't have the funds. First week and a half, I thought, man, this ain't gonna work. After 24 days on campus, Bird packed up his duffel bag and hitchhiked back to French Lick. He did not tell anyone of his plans, not even Coach Knight. Letdown reverberated throughout the entire community. Let my mother down. She didn't talk to me for two months. But it didn't matter what other people said. To this day, I don't care. Back in French Lick, Bird went to work for the city. Meanwhile, that winter, his father's demons had taken him to an even darker place. Here's Jackie McMullen, author of the book on Bird and Magic, When the Game Was Ours. By this point, Joe and Georgia were divorced, and he was behind in his payments to the family. The police came by, and of course, they all knew him. So Joe said, hey, I need a few hours to get my affairs together before you take me away. So he called Georgia, and he said, you guys will be better off without me, and I'm going to take my life. And he put the phone down, and, and he killed himself. He shot himself. Here again is Mark Bird and Larry's high school coach, Jim Jones. When Dad passed, you know, it hurt Larry. I mean, that was his best friend. It's gone now. And But Larry didn't show it a lot. He just didn't say much. You know, he just kind of held it within. I never, I've never heard him speak out about it at all. Here's Larry. I was mad when I heard about it, and I was madder after the funeral because I thought he sort of cut out on us during a, a tough time. But you know, he went he went through a lot in his life. He did what he had to do. Here again is Jackie McMullen. If Bill Hodges hadn't been as persistent as he had been, Larry Bird might never have existed in any of our minds. I believe that with all my heart. I really do. It was Bill Hodges, the persistent young assistant coach from Indiana State University, who convinced Bird to give college hoops another shot. So with the promise to his mom to graduate, Bird headed to ISU, a school that never so much had been to the NCAA tournament. This fact did not phase Larry Bird. Once I started playing, it's the same old thing. You know, he's at a small school and he ain't playing against anybody, <clears throat> which is fine. Still dominated. By the time he had led Tiny ISU as a senior to a 33-0 record and a spot in the 79 title game, Larry Bird had become, alongside Magic Johnson, the talk of college basketball. The day before playing in the most widely anticipated college title game ever, 
Magic couldn't wait to greet his old playmate. Here's Magic. And then State was on practicing, and we were waiting in the tunnel. We got there early. I wanted to definitely say hello to Larry, you know. When they came through, it was like nobody was saying nothing. I wanted to go toward him, like his guys, like made sure that he didn't say nothing. And then they kind of start snickering, like, Missing State, you in trouble. We're going to kill you guys tomorrow. I probably did snub him. I don't remember it, but I'm, I'm sure I did. I didn't want any, you know, like I call it love fest, hugging and, and, and slapping high fives with opponent. You're there for a reason. You're there to win a game. That just said it's on now. Heading into the tournament, Magic was the bigger star. But by tip-off, it was Bird, having hardly missed a shot in the semifinal, who had become the focus for the fans and, more importantly, Michigan State. We actually had two men on Larry everywhere he went. Look at the pressure around him. Two, three men, and he's short. I didn't play well at all. Biggest game of my life, I didn't play well. Loss I ever took. I, I knew it was going to haunt him forever because we were going to see each other a lot. The National Basketball Association in its 33rd season is troubled by diminishing crowds and declining television ratings, signs that fan interest may be waning. College basketball was flourishing at the end of the 1970s, but after the golden era of Bill Russell and Jerry West in the 1960s, the pro game was crumbling. But on a balmy afternoon in June, while Larry Bird was playing golf in Santa Claus, Indiana with his longtime friend, Max Gibson, a stranger hollered to them, Larry Bird, you've just been drafted by the Boston Celtics. What does that mean? Bird asked. Hell, I don't know, he said. Indiana State's season had just ended in heartbreak in Salt Lake City at the hands of Michigan State, and the Celtics made a pitch to sign Bird for the final eight games of their season. The young forward opted instead to teach flag football, baseball, badminton, and dodgeball at the local Indiana high school. His duties also included teaching mentally disabled children, a CPR course, and a driver's education course. It was an unbelievable experience, Bird said. And when we come back, we continue with the life of Irvin Magic Johnson, born on this day in history in 1959. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life and all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with her terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. And more on Irving Magic Johnson after these messages. And we continue with the story of Irvin Magic Johnson, who was born on this day in history in 1959. Let's continue where we last left off. One evening that summer, Bird was playing baseball and positioned in left field when a hard rolling ball smashed his finger and bent it backward. I looked down, Bird said, 
and my finger was all the way over on the other side of my hand. Bird had to have surgery. How long is it going to take before it's healed? Bird asked the surgeon. Son, I'm not sure it will. He was right. Today, Bird concedes. I never could shoot as well again. Bird finished his senior year at Indiana State, and then in the spring of 1979, the NBA's sixth selected draft pick arrived with great hopes for the city of Boston. Here's Walter Cronkite. There's hope he can help solve professional basketball's difficulties, which some say are compounded by a question of black and white. The great white hope. What does that mean? Well, you know, it's very hard to say because there's a lot of great white players around, and, and I just hope that I can just fit in as well as some of them that has fit in. You know, the, the great players are the black players, and they're the best. Such regard meant little to black Celtics. Guys like Cedric Maxwell, who looked at Bird and saw not the great white hope, but another case of great white hype. I think that you would say that most black players at the time were racist in, in the sense that we did not think that you could find a, a white guy who could play better than any black guy. When I walk in the first day of camp, them guys were on the floor stretching and here comes the white savior, here comes this, here comes that. I sort of enjoyed it because I knew I was going to battle them all day. But Curtis and Sidney didn't last long. They didn't even make it through the first practice. And they were cut. So that was just Cedric. I'm thinking, oh, he's slow. He can't get off a shot. He's not that strong. This is going to be a layup. Bam. Knocks down a jump shot. Okay. Maybe that was luck. Gets the ball again. Bam. Knocks down another jump shot. Now I'm thinking like, okay, hey. You know what? I'm going to D this guy up. I'm going to show him his life. 20 feet away. Bam. 25 feet away. Bam. <laughs> I, my mind just goes to the, damn, this white guy can play. <laughs> it was a good thing, too. The storied Celtics might have been the winningest team in NBA history, but they were fresh off their worst season in 30 years. And in Bird, they not only had a player who was supremely talented, but tough enough to take on any challenge. Larry Bird plays it to the hilt, baby. Talent, toughness, and confidence aside, Boston also liked winners. And when Bird led the Celtics to the NBA championship in just his second season, he was finally one of those two. And Larry Bird is right in the middle. He's the eye of the hurricane, known as the Boston Celtics. Boston loved Larry Bird. It just wasn't so clear at first how much Bird loved the city back. Here's Bird speaking at the city parade celebrating their NBA championship. There's only one place I'd rather be, French Lick. Thank you. He proudly dubbed himself the Hick from French Lick, and he looked every bit the part. But those who played him for simple did so at their own peril. One of the great ways, I think, of winding up with no money in your pocket is to think Larry Bird is dumb. Syntax is not intelligence. Unlettered is not stupid. He did, however, allow the public one small indulgence. You could come out on Saturday and watch him mow his lawn. Huge crowds started to stop. Larry Bird's cutting grass in front of his house. He's mowing his lawn in the springtime. Larry is about doing things himself. And I think it's one of the things that made him so beloved in Boston. But as Bird navigated through his new world, he still had one eye fixed 
on a familiar foe in a faraway land. It is now exactly 12 noon. The draft is officially open. The first pick, the Los Angeles Lakers select Irvin Magic Johnson, Michigan State, 6'8", 200 pounds. In the stoic Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the Lakers had talent, but what they were lacking in was energy. Irvin Magic Johnson was only too happy to provide it. Here's Brian Gumbel. Lift the place up. Change the franchise. Change the temperament. I changed it from the very first game. Skyhook up and good. Lakers win. Here it was, the first game of a long season against the lowly Clippers. And Magic was embracing Kareem as if they'd just won their 10th straight championship. It was like, man, this is a different kind of dude. Here's Magic's close friend, Arsenio Hall. From the day he arrived, he became the prince of the city. He reminded me of a guy who wakes up without an alarm clock. And that's what I used to always say. I want to be happy enough to wake up without an alarm clock because I want to go into my world. Here's former Lakers head coach, Pat Riley. He had it, what it is. As far as I was concerned, the it was not his ability or his size. The it was his attitude, was his leadership, was his mind. In his rookie season, Magic led the Lakers to the 1980 NBA championship. But what Bird couldn't possibly have known was that he had inspired Magic's performance when he was named Rookie of the Year that same day. Here again is Jackie McMullen. The PR person from the Lakers says, hey, Irvin, the Rookie of the Year voting has come out. And Magic says, okay, well, who won? He said, well, Larry Bird won. And Magic says, well, was it close? And he said, oh, no. Bird won the award by a 63-3 margin. Magic received the remaining three votes. Bird won the title the next year, and soon after that, black kids began showing up at the playground wearing Bird's number 33 jersey. Magic was surprised the first time he saw it, especially because it was on the blacktop in Los Angeles. Bird also had a close eye on Magic. I'd get up in the mornings and see what he did because their games came on late. Then you look at the box score. I had to have him there for some reason. Like a crutch. Somebody I can compare myself to. I hated what was being said that Larry was better than me and I'm just a guy who can control the game. My first four or five years, that bothered me a lot. I didn't tell nobody it bothered me, but it did. Their competitive dislike emerged from a greater truth that on the court, they were two of a kind. Basketball prodigies who fused the substance of the 60s with the style of the 70s to create a new and exciting, yet selfless way to play the game in the 1980s. But with continued low television ratings and tape-delayed finals, the NBA was struggling to get the word out. After the NBA signed a new TV deal with CBS before the 82-83 season, the rescue plan was simple. Sell more magic and bird. Here again is McMullen and Ted Shaker, former executive for CBS Sports. You got this slick Showtime African-American guy out west, and you got the lunch bucket, floppy-haired white guy with the bruises all over his body. It's central casting. It's perfect. I mean, this was like made in heaven. In 1979, this idea of magic and bird was created. And so that was sort of a no-brainer. 
we'd have a double header. It would be the Celtics playing first and the Lakers playing second, and that's the way we did it. In 1984, when the Celtics and the Lakers both reached the finals just a year into the TV deal, the superstar investment was about to pay off. It came down to Game 7. It was like college in 1979 for Magic and Bird. Magic and the Lakers flew into Boston for Game 7. The plane pulled in, like the whole airport just stopped and turned and just stared at us and guys running up. Magic, Larry's gonna kill you. Larry's gonna kill you. And so just looking and everybody, yeah, Bird's gonna kill you, Magic. And when we come back, more on the life of Irvin Magic Johnson and of course, Larry Bird and storytelling doesn't get better than this. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Irvin Magic Johnson, born on this day in history in 1959. And one can't talk about Magic Johnson without talking about Larry Bird. This is one of the great love stories in American sports. The American people love this rivalry, and these two rivals, well, they ended up, well, ended up loving each other. Let's return to the story. Game 7 of the 84 series was the highest rated game the NBA had ever produced. But Magic was not rejoicing. The Boston Celtics are the NBA world champions. Well, it was a big deal. I remember asking Quinn Buckner about it afterwards. They had a celebration in downtown Boston after they won the championship. And, you know, it was unusual for Larry to have these little outbursts, as Quinn would call them. But, you know, about 11.30 at night, finally he turned to Quinn, he goes, I got him. I finally got him. And he was talking about magic. The two teams met again in the NBA Finals the following season. But in the 1985 Finals, Magic flipped the script, winning the clinching game at the Boston Garden. But the significance of their rivalry and their relationship was about to change. Converse had convinced Magic and Bird to shoot a sneaker commercial in the summer of 1985. You crazy. <laughs> I said, you crazy. I'm not shooting no commercial with Larry. So I said, okay, what, we're going to shoot it in L.A.? I would never went to L.A. to film it. Well, where are we going to shoot it? If you want to shoot a commercial, come to my house. I was like, oh, no. One stoplight. And I thought Lansing was small. I think the plan was, I'm going to go here, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do, and I'm trying to get up out of here. 
My plan was that. The ad was to be shot at the home Bird built for his mom just outside French Lick, Indiana. It featured a full-length basketball court, the day's first shooting location. So they say, okay, you're playing one-on-one, and I'm looking at Larry, and he's looking at me like, is this real? Are we playing, playing? Because, you know, this is, this is magic and bird. I could just hear Larry, you know, starting in on, well, you bring it to the basket, and I'm going to send it 30 rows up. So the guy was like, no, no, not like that. A fun game. We were both like, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> like you can see this relief coming over both of our faces. We sat down next to each other. How was your summer? Oh, it's going good. How was yours? It's going great. I said, man, it's a nice spread you got. He's asked me, is this where you play? I said, yeah, let's play here. If it's not windy, if it's raining or windy, I go to the gym. But this is where I do all my work. I see that tractor. You work on the, on the tractor? He said, man, I work on this tractor every day. Larry Bird work on a tractor? He said, yeah. It's just them two walking and talking. And every once in a while, they'd stop, and one of them would say something, and then they'd start laughing. Then they said, okay, break, it's lunch break time. I was going to my trailer. He said, no, my mother has prepared lunch for us up at the house. We went up to the house and we sat down there and we talked. And my mom, my brothers thought the world of him. His mother was so nice, making sure I had enough to eat. I just saw my mother. It was crazy. He charmed her. You can see it, but that's magic. He makes everybody feel welcome and warm, and he's a con man. <laughs> By the dawn of the 90s, Magic won five titles, played in eight finals, and equaled Bird's MVP tally of three. The Prince of L.A. was now the king, and in Hollywood, being royalty has its perks. For Magic, his favorite perk was women. But things were not the same back in Boston, Larry Bird was taking care of a nasty back injury that occurred in 1985 while single-handedly building his mother's driveway back in French Lick. But after two ruptured Achilles tendons and surgery on his back in 1991, Bird kept going to work. You know, I probably should have retired in 88, 89, but uh, it's that competition. Maybe one more chance, man, Magic get together in the finals. But it never happened. And then Magic received a phone call. I'm sleeping, really, laying down, just waiting on the game. And uh, the phone rings. And uh, the voice says, hey, you got to come back to L.A. And uh, I said, "Okay, why? Well, I can't tell you until you get to L.A. So... I said, okay. Dr. Melman starts to tell me that, you know, uh, through the physical that I took, that um, they discovered that I had HIV. Oh, it was everything. How is it possible? What happened? How did it happen to me? My mind is racing, you know, and uh, and then you just you just devastated. 
The first person I thought of was Larry. I wonder what Larry thinks. The day that I heard about magic, it just sort of changed my love for basketball. It shook me up. You know, you gotta get that feeling. Probably the same type of feeling I had when my father died. Called me and uh, we're talking. You know, it's just, how you doing? I heard about it and uh, you can almost hear both of us with some uh, tears in our eyes. And I'm choked up because he did call me. And, uh, you know, when something happens, you and then you find out who really your friends are and people who really care about you um, you figure all those battles all those things we had to go through as warriors as competitors, then as men. And um, here this man says, hey, you know what, man, you're okay. And so um, that was the greatest moment for me, too, you know, to have him check on me and, and to make sure I was okay. Magic retired immediately and Bird's 91-92 season was his last in the NBA. To his delight, Magic was invited to play in the 1992 NBA All-Star Game. He stole the show and won MVP honors, but that was just a warm-up for the encore Magic had up his sleeve. Here's Larry Bird. He's not done yet because we're going to go to Barcelona and bring back the gold for everyone here in the United States. For the first time ever, NBA players would be competing in the Olympics on the first dream team with the likes of Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley. The irony was that Magic felt incredible, but Bird, with his bad back, could hardly move. But you know what? Didn't matter. We were still together. You know, didn't matter. Hold me close and hold me fast. And when he got his opportunities... He swished a few. When I got my opportunity, I still was magic. Today, decades removed from the height of their rivalry, their bond endures. Two impossibly different men with a connection only they can fully grasp. But I always, I always get this good feeling when I know I'm going to see him because uh, he makes you feel good. You know, he really does. <laughs> he's unbelievable. He's very private, but if he's your friend, man, you got a friend for life. And Larry Bird is a straight shooter. He'll tell you when he don't like you. That's one thing I wish I could have from him, that, that he has that I don't have. I wish I had that. I mean, he walked in here, this whole room would change, and uh, maybe that's what I always wanted to be, but I just couldn't. 
And there you have it. What a story. The story of Irvin Magic Johnson, born on this day in history in 1959. But of course, the story of an epic friendship, an epic rivalry, and two men who changed the sport. Before 1979, basketball was in trouble, and these guys resuscitated a dying sport. And by the way, as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And please go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for one of their free and terrific online courses. They teach the things that should be taught. They teach the things that aren't being taught in so many of our schools, from American history to philosophy to art. It's all there. Their C.S. Lewis course is terrific. It's free, and it's available to all of you who are listening. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. On this day in history, Irvin Magic Johnson was born in 1959. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell every kind of story here, from art to sports to business, and of course, history, and we do it this day in history every day, and we love books, and we've done David McCullough and the Wright Brothers, and we've done that great, great book about Mark Twain's last and epic tour in his life to, well, get some money back because he'd been broke from so many adventures and misadventures in the stock market and in business. And a book review caught our attention in the Wall Street Journal, and the title was The Franklin House Divided. And here's how it started. On the 4th of July, 1776, Benjamin Franklin was in Philadelphia, having helped to draft the Declaration of Independence while his son, the governor of New Jersey, was under arrest in Connecticut, having been branded an enemy of his country for persisting in his royal duties and opposing the revolution. In less than a year, William Franklin would be taken to the notorious Litchfield Gowl, a destination for, among others, traitors who had abused their privileges in lighter incarceration. And that led us to the guest that joins us now. The book review was for The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House, and Daniel Mark Epstein joins us now. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be with you. And Daniel, tell us, what drew you to this book? Well, I was always interested in Benjamin Franklin from the time I was a kid, you know, as being one of the most versatile Americans, a man who was a great inventor, uh, and probably the, the, the first great scientist in terms of uh, electricity, and of course everybody knows the story about Ben flying the kite, and... I remember seeing the woodcut of, uh, of Benjamin Franklin flying the kite with his little boy, and I wondered what would it be like to have Benjamin Franklin as a father. I mean, a man who was not only a great inventor, but um, created the militia, and 
Pennsylvania in order to defend the frontier against the Indians, and then, you know, created the first postal system in Pennsylvania and the University of Pennsylvania, and then, of course, became uh, one of the greatest American patriots during the Revolution. What would it be like to be that man's son? Uh, and then, of course, I found out that um, Benjamin Franklin's only son was um, illegitimate, a bastard, but that uh, he was raised just as if he had been a legitimate son. And the two of them were partners in politics and in military affairs and uh, later in diplomacy. Um, so it was an extraordinary father-son relationship. And the fact that they went different ways during the Revolution and that William Franklin um, became the governor, the royal governor of New Jersey, while his father, of course, was the greatest patriot, uh, drove them apart. And I thought, what a tragedy and what a great story. So I actually wrote a poem about this in the 1990s. And do you have that poem? Do I have it with me right now? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's, it was published long ago. And as often happens, because I, I was a, a poet before I became a biographer, several of my uh, poems have been transformed into these larger and more complete biographies. And well, a good case of that. And that's so it really stuck with you. I mean, it went from poetry to, to, uh, to nonfiction. And in the end, poetry is, is storytelling as well. And, uh, and that's what you're doing here. Talk to the, the listeners, because a lot of people don't know this about American history. This was no duck walk for ordinary Americans. It split families. It split fathers and sons. Some people were with the revolutionaries and the, and the patriots. Some are with the, with, the, with the crown. And some were just hiding under the table, hoping it would pass. How did this basically split up, uh, particularly in the area where Franklin lived in Pennsylvania, the numbers changed, but at the beginning, uh, the majority of the people were against the revolution. And in fact, uh, Benjamin Franklin and his son, in their works of diplomacy um, in England, tried to prevent the revolution. It was only after the British beca uh, government became more and more oppressive and they sent troops to Boston um, that Benjamin Franklin finally became a patriot fairly late in the game, around 1775. Uh, so they both resisted the revolution. As far as the numbers are concerned, by 70, 1776, um, I would say a third of the American people were for the revolution, a third were against it, and the other third were just trying to blow with the wind and try to, you know, try to um, try to keep out of trouble. And talk about now, uh, just briefly. We'll we'll open up the open up the lid on the next segment about this father son conflict, but. Were there, were there battles out in the streets? Was this quiet? Was this simmering? What was the, what was the climate like for folks day to day? Uh, obviously, Franklin had, a, had something to do with newspapers as well. Talk about what it felt like then, because today all we hear about is, my goodness, the climate today in America, it's just so hard. But my goodness, we have seen much tougher times in this country. Well, um, just as an example, um, during the, the passing of the Stamp Act, uh, there were riots in the streets in, uh, in Boston and Philadelphia. And by 1775, um, there was really open warfare in the streets of many cities um, over, the, um, over the tax, uh, the ver various tax collectors, people protecting them, people attacking them. And uh, by 1776, there were 
these provincial uh, committees of safety who would um, actually hold individuals uh, accountable if they said anything that, uh, that seemed to be threatening to the um, movement for independence. And this was the point where Governor Franklin, you know, as the last royal governor of New Jersey, was defending, uh, defending the loyalists, the people who protected the crown. So it really was, uh, it was a revolution in, I mean, it was a uh, civil war in the streets of the major cities uh, all over, all over America. Indeed, it was our first civil war. I mean, that's what I got from the book. I mean, we had one before we had one. This is Lee Habib, and this is... Daniel Mark Epstein and his terrific book, The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House. More after these messages. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we return with the author Daniel Mark Epstein and the book The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House. Now we had talked about briefly, Daniel, uh, what Ben Franklin was like and his remarkable contributions to this country. There were very few men with his biography, maybe no American with his biography. And let's talk about that son. You said he was a bastard child. Talk about his life and how he got from being Ben Franklin's son to the governor of a state, and there weren't that many states back then. Well, he was, um, William Franklin was an extraordinary young man in his own right. Uh, people talk about Ben Franklin as being precocious, as a businessman and a printer and a politician, uh, but his son also was extraordinary. Um, his son wanted a military career, and so he went off and, and joined, uh, joined the King's Army at age 15, and by the time he was 18 years old, he was a captain, which was the highest rank you could attain in America without uh, paying for it. And um, at that point, he retired from the Army, and uh, his father got him a really good tutor, and he started studying law. And then he worked for his father um, in the um, legislature, in the Assembly of Pennsylvania, so he got this political career. And then when his father got the job to go off to England as the agent for the Assembly of Pennsylvania, representing the, the Assembly against the proprietors who refused to be taxed, his son went with him. And in England, his son rose very quickly. Uh, he went to the bar uh, and got his law, his law degree in his mid-20s, and shortly after that uh, was appointed to be the governor of New Jersey. So at that point in his life, he was in his late 20s. Uh, his father was uh, 50, in his mid-50s. He was even more powerful in the, uh, in the government than his father was. So he had an extraordinary career. And so let's get down to this conflict. I mean, by the time we get to the Stamp Act, as we had indicated before, 
the, the country was in pretty much open rebellion and a civil war was brewing. And William took a stand and Ben took a stand. And talk about uh, their final meeting in particular was remarkable. But before we get to that, build up to that if we can. Set up that, I, I think, almost just tragic scene between a father and son. Well, it's really extraordinary the extent to which the two men were living in different worlds. Because um, by 1775, two years before the actual uh, Declaration of Independence, uh, William had been living in America. He was the governor of New Jersey, and he'd been the governor of New Jersey for more than a decade uh, in trying to represent the king's interests in America and trying to prevent this revolution, which he knew would be a disaster. And a lot of people, even Benjamin Franklin up until 1775, felt it would be a big mistake for America to separate from the mother country. Meanwhile, his father is in England, and his father is still working on behalf of the colonies, representing the colonies' interests in, uh, in England uh, against Parliament. And he's seeing more and more corruption in, uh, in England, and uh, in the meantime, the, 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 the English government is sending troops to Boston and the rest of America in order to enforce these uh, taxation laws. And he's growing more and more bitter against the, uh, the English government, so that the two of them were living in different worlds. And when it finally came down to the uh, 1776 and the Declaration of Independence, uh, William was thoroughly on the side of the king and the crown, and his father at that point was a confirmed American patriot and revolutionary. So they just went different ways. Even before that, I think there was a certain amount of jealousy between father and son, as sometimes happens tragically. Um, And um, his dad, I think, was a a little bit jealous of William. So let's talk next about this father and son. They're at loggerheads. What happens to William next as he takes his stand? The country is moving to war. It's clearly ready for war. William's not. Well, first of all, his father came home in time to try to talk his son over to the, the side that he believed would be safest, uh, that is, the side of the revolutionaries. And the two had some very, very stormy confrontations um, in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey, uh, where, where uh, his father visited him, and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries, because that was his side and the family's side, and William refused. And William uh, ended up being the last, um, the last royal governor to do the king's business in America, uh, stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion and had to be taken away bodily and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield, Litchfield Jail, where he was in solitary confinement uh, with bread and water for 18 months. Uh, and suffered terribly during that time. Um, he finally was released in a prisoner's exchange, but his father had very little to do with that, and eventually went back to England. And this had to really hurt Ben Franklin. I mean, A, it's his son, and no matter what kind of jealousies might have existed, to watch this befall, this kind of plight befall your son, had to be difficult. Moreover, he's a very public figure, and it wasn't as if his son was some wallflower. He was a governor who was now in jail. How did he handle that? Well, Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life, and you have to believe that. 
and there was a lot of public criticism of him for not uh, for not helping his son out. But remember, he was the minister plenipotentiary to France, and could not be seen as being in collusion with uh, you know with a Tory. And so he was in a horrible. It's really a tragic situation, uh, which really is kind of like the um, uh, the Revolutionary War in microcosm. And do you think he really understood his son's hardship? I don't. No, I don't really think. I think the the part of the tragedy of the book and what I finally end up saying in the end is that these were two men who could never reconcile, although the son wanted to, William wanted to more than his father did. They could never reconcile because they they just did not understand each other. And these were two very intelligent men. So it shows you just how extreme uh, this break between father and son can be when it happens. Yep, and, and in the end, the, the father didn't understand the son, but the son didn't understand the dad either. I don't think so. I don't. Part of the, what, what we haven't spoken about is that at the end of the war, William became a counter-revolutionary, a violent counter-revolutionary, and uh, this his father could not could not ever forgive. And indeed, he couldn't. And by the way, father-son's stories, well, they're riveting, always drawing everyone in. I mean, this is how Arthur Miller made his living, telling father-son stories. Heck, it's, it's how Bruce Springsteen's made his. And this is as good and as harrowing a father-son story as I've ever read. Daniel Mark Epstein, The Loyal Son, The War in Franklin's House. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And, you know, we love to do these stories about history. And as always, so often, we bring you this days in history by Hillsdale College. But stories like this are always brought to us by the fine folks at Hillsdale, too. And, my goodness, one of the things I had forgotten to ask uh, Daniel was what the similarities were today to then. Uh, and in large measure, that populist movement of the revolutionaries well, it came about because they had been felt like they'd been governed by a foreign and far of power, and that's of course the British Crown. And in large measure today, a lot of the populist movement, many people believe, is because there's a far of power called Washington D.C., and many people in this country feel like that foreign power or that far away power isn't responsive to their needs and to their lives. Again, as always, these stories, the stories about American history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. And folks, they have terrific, terrific online courses there on everything. And the one I'd most highly recommend to start things out is the Constitution 101, because it digs in and drills down on the founding fathers and what they were after as they created the most important document in world history. And many people believe that. It's not just us saying it. We don't have a lot of opinions here in the show. We just tell stories. And one of the stories coming up, we'll be doing a a long-form series on the Constitution and how it came to be. But go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And again, The Loyal Son is the book, The War in Franklin's House. And we learn in this story that there was a civil war in this country long before the Civil War. And it had started off with just a small minority of Americans wanting to fight the revolution. But ultimately, many more joined, many resisted, and again, many, well, they just hid, hoping it would all pass. And this story of Ben Franklin and his son 
and his son being in, imagine this, solitary confinement for 18 months with bread and water. The most famous of the founding fathers, but for George Washington, and his son rotting in jail. What a story. Ben Franklin's story, his son's story, here on Our American Stories. stories and anytime we can play Alison Krauss in the right context we do no one does the American songbook better straight as an arrow let the song do the talking and it's time for our regular final thought segment this is when we hear final thoughts from people who are dying and also final thoughts from folks about those who have passed a eulogy a written tribute anything that stirs the soul And we've taken a few from this particular gentleman who writes periodically for the Wall Street Journal because he's a doctor. And doctors know firsthand a lot about death. And this is a man who has not insulated himself from the emotional impact of patients that die. And that makes him remarkable. This week's final thoughts feature is a powerful one from Dr. E. Wesley Ely. And again, he's a professor of medicine and critical care at the Nashville VA Medical Center and the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Ely recently told the story in the Wall Street Journal, and it was called A Swimming Pool in the ICU. He graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. Swimming pool in the ICU? You must be you nuts. must be nuts. The nurse's voice was almost lost among the whooshing ventilator and infusion pumps. Five days earlier, we had admitted Benny, a Vietnam veteran, to the intensive care unit of our VA hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. Frail and wrinkled, he had a look of utter confusion and a furrowed brow that would pluck the heartstrings of even the most calloused physician. Decades spent in southern tobacco fields left him looking old enough to remember Hoover's presidency. Double pneumonia and too much sedation made him delirious. As his attending physician, 
I was thankful for his family. His daughter and son, Laura and Lynn, implored, take good care of dad, he's all we have. Seeing him on a ventilator is terrifying, they said, but we believe in miracles. While loving, such a mindset could become problematic since their father's situation had the makings of a fatal illness, despite our best technology. With antibiotics and fluids, Benny improved dramatically and was taken off the ventilator several days later. That same night, though, a massive stroke paralyzed his entire left side and he went back on life support. We quickly administered clot-busting medicine and he rallied, remarkably regaining movement of his left arm and leg. The following day, the intern reported, his delirium has cleared and he's mouthing words around the endotracheal tube despite this wicked aspiration pneumonia. I sensed an unexpected window of opportunity. We revisited Benny's life goals in light of what had happened and spoke directly about the big picture. With his children looking on, I held Benny's hand and looked him in the eyes, choosing my words based on what I knew about his background and the family's expectation of miracles. I said, Benny, just like tobacco plants eventually wither and wilt, so do we. You have improved in some ways, but overall, you're very weak. How can we serve you best? The next morning, Laura and Lynn were upbeat, which confused me, since Benny looked weaker than ever. They pointed to words on a whiteboard in the room, explaining they were Benny's goals. Stable vital signs? Baptism. I spotted Kelly, our charge nurse, smiling like a cat who'd swallowed a canary. In her arms, she clutched a box containing a large vinyl swimming pool. First, I made sure this was actually Benny's request and not the family's. My next thought was that we'd have a chaplain anoint him with holy water in his bed. But Laura disagreed. Jesus wasn't sprinkled, Doc. He was dumped. A senior physician protested that the patient was on a ventilator and said he'd never seen a bedside baptism like this in 50 years of practice. There was no shortage of opinions about whether this was appropriate, safe, or even possible. A large area next to Benny's bed was cleared and an electric pump inflated the pool. When a large multi-person bucket brigade proved too difficult, an engineer rigged dialysis tubing to circulate the pool with a stream of warm water. Benny was then hoisted high into the air via a patient transfer lift. And the ventilator was unplugged before he was lowered into the pool. Lynn gently took his father the man who'd showed him how to farm into his arms. Following the cherished Christian tradition, he slowly submerged Benny's head completely under the water, saying, Dad, I baptize you in the name of the God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amazing grace, how sweet the on cue, the palliative care social worker began belting out Amazing Grace. The rest of us stood frozen in time. First out of the water was blue corrugated ventilator tubing. Then his face appeared around the breathing tube. Benny's huge smile seemed to say, Better late than never. 
When he died a week later, Laura implored me to tell other people about her dad, hoping his experience would show them that we can all become strong through our weakness. In fact, I've seen scores of patients and families use profound outer wasting as a catalyst for deep inner renewal. The most two important frames of our life are birth and death. We typically associate baptism with the former, yet Jesus spoke of his death as a baptism to indicate the formative next step that dying represents for our journey. The ICU team's bold yet careful response to Benny's unusual request taught me an enduring lesson regarding sympathy versus empathy. Sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. Empathy is feeling with someone. In all the surrounding insanity of the hospital that day, diving deeply into Benny's life through his baptism on the breathing machine allowed all of us to be reborn too. Being with him in that pool and rising with him out of it, we walked into others' lives better prepared to serve them. And it doesn't get better than that, folks, and that's why we love running these stories. Uh, you know, you got to hold back a tear listening to that. And I love that definition of empathy and sympathy. You know, Bono said of Johnny Cash when he was buried, Johnny Cash doesn't sing to the damned, he sings with the damned. And I think that's why Cash was so loved. And God bless the folks who did this amazing thing. Uh, and most folks in most hospitals just wouldn't have bothered. Too difficult. Splash a little water on his head. That's it. That's all we got. We'll end here as we started. Our final thought segment. Allison Krauss. Studying about that good old way And who shall wear the starry crown Good Lord, show me the way Oh, sinners, let's go down Let's go down, come on down Oh, sinners, let's go down Down in the river to This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and that's Steve Martin performing King Tut on Saturday Night Live. An actor, a writer, a producer, a musician, Steve Martin came to public notice in the 60s as a writer for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, and later as a frequent guest on The Tonight Show. In the 70s, he performed his odd and offbeat and quirky comedy routines before packed national houses. He's returned to doing stand-up and also regularly tours with his bluegrass band, the Steep Canyon Rangers. We start this segment with Steve's classic stand-up comedy album called Let's Get Small, 
Recorded in San Francisco at a boarding house in 77, the album went platinum and peaked at number 10 on the Billboard pop charts. This album won the Grammy in 1979 for Best Comedy Album. In this clip, Steve gives hilarious takes on smoking. Well, not too many people smoking out here tonight. That's pretty good. <laughs> kind of bothers some people. If you're in a sleazy place like this and people start smoking, you know. It doesn't bother me in a nightclub because I'm used to it. If I'm in a restaurant though, and I'm eating and someone says, Hey, mind if I smoke? Well, I always say, Oh, no, do you mind if I fart? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my habits. <laughs> yeah, they got a special section for me on airplanes now. I quit once for a year, you know. But I gained a lot of weight. It's hard to quit. Um, you know, after sex, I really have the urge to light one up. Huh? <laughs> See, I'm not a very tactful person. You ever start talking to someone and you forget what you're going to say and you're standing there going... Yeah, I was going to say something, I forgot what it was. And they always go, well, it must not have been very important, or you wouldn't have forgot it. <laughs> I would say, oh, I remember, I'm radioactive. <laughs> Shake. Okay, we're moving now, eh, folks? <laughs> yes, this is comedy. All right. Well, I decided I'm taking up smoking. My uh, doctor told me I wasn't getting enough tar. <laughs> now, the fun part of smoking is deciding what brand to smoke. Now, Virginia Slims, that's a woman's cigarette, right? What do they have, like little breasts on them or something? <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's another funny clip from that same album where Steve talks about how mad he is at his 102-year-old mother. <laughs> I'm so mad at my mother. <laughs> I don't know. She's 102 years old. She called me up the other day. She wanted to borrow $10 for some food. <laughs> I said, hey, I work for a living. So I loan her the money. I have one of my secretaries take it down. And yesterday she called me up and said she can't pay me back for a while. I said, what is this? So I worked it out whether I'm having her work on my transmission. <laughs> and if she can't fix that, I'm having her move my barbells up to the attic. <laughs> oh, and every once in a while on Our American Stories, we want to just dig into a comic's life. We're going to be doing this over and over again over the next few months. Born Standing Up, A Comic's Life is a memoir released by Martin back in 2007. It chronicles his early life, his days working for Disneyland in the magic shop, working at coffee shops and clubs as a comedy act, his relationships, his eventual fame, and the reason why he quit stand-up comedy at the height of his fame in 1981. In this clip, we hear a portion of this fascinating look into the mind of a comic genius 
read by Martin himself from his own audio book. It starts with Steve's nonconformist chant. And now, let's repeat the nonconformist oath. I promise to be different. I promise to be unique. I promise not to repeat things other people say. I did stand-up comedy for 18 years. Ten of those years were spent learning, four years were spent refining, and four were spent in wild success. My most persistent memory of stand-up is of my mouth being in the present and my mind being in the future. The mouth speaking the line, the body delivering the gesture, while the mind looks back, observing, analyzing, judging, worrying, and then deciding when and what to say next. Enjoyment while performing was rare. Enjoyment would have been an indulgent loss of focus that comedy cannot afford. After the shows, however, I experienced long hours of elation or misery, depending on how the show went, because doing comedy alone on stage is the ego's last stand. My decade is the 70s, with several years extending on either side. Though my general recall of the period is precise, my memory of specific shows is faint. I stood on stage, blinded by lights, looking into blackness, which made every place the same. Darkness is essential. If light is thrown on the audience, they don't laugh. I might as well have told them to sit still and be quiet. The audience necessarily remained a thing unseen, except for a few front rows, where one sourpuss could send me into panic and desperation. The comedian's slang for a successful show is, I murdered them, which I'm sure came about because you finally realize that the audience is capable of murdering you. <laughs> Stand-up is seldom performed in ideal circumstances. Comedy's enemy is distraction, and rarely do comedians get a pristine performing environment. I worried about the sound system, ambient noise, hecklers, drunks, lighting, sudden clangs, latecomers and loud talkers, and not to mention the nagging concern, is this funny? Yet the seedier the circumstances, the funnier one can be. I suppose these worries keep the mind sharp and the senses active. I can remember instantly retiming a punchline to fit around the crash of a dropped glass of wine, or raising my voice to cover a patron's ill-timed sneeze, seemingly microseconds before the interruption happened. I was seeking comic originality, and fame fell on me as a byproduct. The course was more plodding than heroic. I did not strive valiantly against doubters, but took incremental steps studded with a few intuitive leaps. I was not naturally talented. I didn't sing, dance, or act, though working around that minor detail made me inventive. I was not self-destructive, though I almost destroyed myself. In the end, I turned away from stand-up with a tired swivel of my head and never looked back until now. A few years ago, I began researching and recalling the details of this crucial part of my professional life, which inevitably touches upon my personal life, and was reminded why I did stand-up and why I walked away. Fascinating, and what a writer. And we want to end where we started, and let's go back to Steve Martin's comedy album, Let's get small and hear his hilarious insight into how it's impossible to be depressed when listening to the sound of a banjo. It's not a happy sound, it was just... 
just can't sing a depressing song when you're playing the banjo. And you just can't go, oh, death and grief and sorrow and murder. When you're playing the banjo, everything's okay. Hey, Steve, your house is burning down. I just thought the banjo was the one thing that could have saved Nixon, you know. <laughs> he went on television right at the right time, went, Hi, everything's great! <laughs> but he was, I think it'd be great if he had been traveling around the country and got off the plane and said, I'd like to talk about politics, but first a little Foggy Mountain Breakdown. go to foreign countries and they get off the plane and people go, hey, do Foggy Mountain. <laughs> yeah, the banjo's so happy. I think, I think people who are out of work, instead of giving them money, we should give them a banjo. <laughs> and then go home and, did you get a job today, dear? Nope. <laughs> Doesn't matter, though. Oh, and we're cracking up here and that's what we want to do. And we're going to be going back Across the Pantheon, we're going to be bringing in Richard Pryor, Sid Caesar, Woody Allen's nightclub years. You want to hear a great stand-up, whatever you think of Woody personally, his movies, his Greenwich Village tapes, some of the funniest stuff you've ever heard. Uh, we've all got to laugh, and we got to enjoy ourselves. Steve Martin. And we're going to go out again where we started with Steve Martin singing King Tut on Saturday Night Live. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this, Jesse. Enjoy the music. The ladies love the sky. Rockin' for a bite. He ate a crocodile. He gave his life for tourism. 